You're listening to Idea Collider, a show that explores the world of asymmetric learning. On this show, I will sit down with pharmaceutical experts and business leaders to discuss how to embrace uncertainty and the different learning style that follows. I'm your host, Mike Rear. Let's get into the show. Rita McGrath is a best-selling author, a sought-after speaker, and a long-time professor at Columbia Business School. In this episode, you'll see why uh, she received the number one achievement award for strategy from the prestigious Thinkers 50, and she's consistently named as one of uh, the world's top 10 management thinkers in its ranking. She's the author of the best-selling The End of Competitive Advantage, which we talk a lot about in this episode. You will also enjoy books like her new one, Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. But it's important that you know that someone as venerable as Clayton Christensen has cited her as creating one of the most important management ideas ever developed. This idea of discovery-driven growth is so fundamental to why this episode, I think, is important for the pharmaceutical industry and for uh, companies looking to learn um, as a competitive advantage. Enjoy. Hello. Hello, Rita. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing fine. Are you uh, you're in the north, northeastern states? I am. I'm actually in Princeton, New Jersey. Oh, lovely. I, I, I love Princeton. It's, uh, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. I uh, always feel like it's a little bit like coming home to England when I get to, <laughs> when I get to Princeton. Indeed. Fantastic. And well, and I have to say, what an honor to meet you. It's, it's um, nice to meet you. It's, yeah. it's, it's wonderful to have someone with your kind of, uh, you know, deep credentials and uh, uh, on, on, on the podcast. So thank you so much for agreeing to do it. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. You know, begin by telling us something about you and how you got to where you are. So, sure. you know, short history and uh, and the kind of highlights uh, that, that, that got you here. So if you don't mind starting with that, that would be that would be wonderful. I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, Mm -hmm. and both of my parents at that time were on the faculty of the Yale Medical School. Uh, So my mother was a microbiologist and my dad was an organic chemist. So grew up in a very nerdy scientific family. You know, when an argument broke out at dinnertime, there was nothing that couldn't be resolved by, you know, consorting with a reference book. (laughs) So that was a bit of my background. So I guess I had that as part of the DNA of growing up. And then my dad took a job with Xerox, which was fascinating because it was in the years where Xerox was funding Xerox uh, Palo Alto Research uh, Center, which was where many of the technologies we take for granted were actually created, right? So, um, and then he went over to Kodak, which was fascinating because, you know, he'd seen the future. And then he went to Kodak and like Kodak didn't want any part of it. (laughs) So so that was sort of the back, sort of in the mix of my background growing up. So I went to school in New York City. I went to university at Barnard College uh, and majored in political science, of all things, and then got a degree in public administration and then worked in the public sector for close to a decade doing uh, municipal municipal government work, which was very interesting because if you're young and you're in one of those pivotal positions at that moment in your development, your career just goes like this. I mean, you've got incredible authority and ability to make things happen and ability to kind of be where the leverage is. But the trouble is your career goes like this and then it goes like that for the rest of your foreseeable. (laughs) At which point I decided to make a transition and I went and uh, did a PhD at the Wharton School. And through my experiences with the city of New York, I got very interested in 
large-scale organizational change. How do organizations actually change from one state of being to another? And so I went to Wharton with this bright idea of studying the science of implementation. And my um, sponsor, who was running the Entrepreneurship Center at the time, said he couldn't think of anything more boring than talking about the science of implementation. And then as luck would have it, we got a grant from Citigroup. And it was a three-year grant to study their corporate venturing process. And our sponsor had this idea that, you know, that we forget, right? We forget what actually happened. And so we have this incomplete picture of what allows an innovation to really break through and what causes them not to. And I was put in charge of that project. And so the dissertation really became about corporate venturing or how companies create new capabilities. And so that that's what got me on the track of innovation and internal corporate venturing. And, and that worked out really well. And so then when I went on the market, I joined Columbia and I've been there ever since. Interesting. And I think you're being very humble. And I think that I mean, some of the comments that come next to your books, it, it's rather Clayton Christensen sort of calls out an idea of, of, of someone's as one of the greatest ideas ever. So could you expand a little bit on some of the books and, sure. and the ideas that you put out oh. in the world? Happy to. So my first book was called The Entrepreneurial Mindset. And the goal of that book was really to say, what can companies who need to innovate over and over and over again? So what can large companies learn from the practices of habitual entrepreneurs? And that was really the core idea behind entrepreneurial mindset. The second book was Market Busters. And that was how do we identify you know, moves in markets at, at the sort of micro market level. So not the big strategy level, but kind of at the micro market level that unlock real opportunities for growth. The third book was Discovery Driven Growth. And I'll come back to that in just a sec, uh, which is really about how do you invent practices in your organization that can compete under conditions of high uncertainty. Yeah. And then I published The End of Competitive Advantage, was really a perspective on the changing nature of strategy and the competitive advantage. And uh, then my most recent book is Seeing Around Corners, which has to do with strategic inflection points. So the specific idea that Clay talked about really, and there's a whole wonderful backstory about it, because both of us were young professors in the 90s. Uh, he had just come off a very successful career as a consultant, and he'd run his own company, and he'd done a bunch of things, but wanted to go back and become an academic. And I had come up through a slightly more traditional academic path. But both of us were working on this problem of, you know, why is it that that when people try to do new things, they they get it so terribly wrong? And Clay's sort of angle was this notion of disruptive technology, which is under certain circumstances, the very things we talk about in business school as being assets to your business. So you're close to your customers and listen to what they're telling you and you do things to provide them with better service. But those very things can become traps uh, mm-hmm. under certain circumstances. And what I was working on was something called discovery driven planning, which was how do you plan when you haven't got the data that you'd like to be able to do a conventional plan? And so our ideas kind of came together in this notion of Clay looking at uncertainty, competition emerging from below, incumbents overshooting. And I came at it with, okay, how do you create a business model that makes sense for a highly uncertain venture when you really just don't know yet whether it's going to work or not? Interesting. And 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 I'm going to go back to your father, actually, if that's okay, because I'm seeing Xerox Park, seeing Kodak who didn't miss the ideas they just missed the implementation right you know well, they, they were there early but decided well, both, not companies, to both companies i mean xerox famously had a book written about this it was called fumbling the future yep. <laughs> you know? 
Um, and Kodak, you know, invented a lot of these digital technologies. And I'll never forget my dad telling me about the first day on the job at Kodak. He's, he's sitting across the desk from a guy named Thomas Whiteley, who was in charge of the emulsion research laboratory at Kodak. So <laughs> lifetime Kodaker, sticking in the army, bleeds silver halide, that kind of guy. And so Whiteley says to my dad, he says, well, so how do you think all this is going to play out? You know, what, what do you see as the next big things in technology? And my dad, and I remember he sort of visited the future metaphorically. Um, and he said, oh, it's very clear. It's all going to be digital. Imaging is going to be done in a different way. Eight millimeter film has had it. Blah, blah, it all out right and whitely kind of you know frozen in the headlights and the response was well that's all great go back to the labs where you can do minimal damage it was kind of the thought and something very profound came out of that for me which was I, I asked my dad a few years later I said well you know long after the story with Kodak had reached a rather sad uh, denouement and I said to him well didn't it bother you and I, he said what do you mean bother me and I said well you saw it so clearly um and yet look what happened and my dad looked at me and he said, look, I'm a scientist. I said, uh-huh. He said, he's management. Like he asked me my scientific opinion. I give it to him. He's management. What he does with it is his problem. And it really struck me. That it's actually something that stuck with me in my more recent work because the there's always somebody that sees it. There's always somebody that knows, right? It's just they're not in the right position. They don't have the audience. They don't have the power. They don't have the courage. They don't have the standing to say to the organization, hey, big things need to be done here. It's it's so interesting. And I've heard similar stories from folks who worked at Nokia and other, you know, other, other companies that were there first, but missed the wave anyway. And uh, and, it, and it's an interesting thing because, you know, from your organizational perspective, you talk about implementation, but you know, one of the things is the people who see it aren't necessarily connected to other people who see it in the same business or who aren't addicted to the current status quo. You know, the people that are currently successful, maybe or the wrong people who could take decisions about what comes next. Well, that's right. And I think this gets at a really interesting kind of backstory. And I talked to my friend Jeff Pfeffer. He's at Stanford about this a lot. And he's just come out with this really great book called Seven Rules of Power. And one of the things that I think happens in companies is people that are in the innovation area, you know, they see what's coming, they have a sense of urgency about it, but they don't have power. And if you don't have power, the decisions are going to be made by the people that do have power. And almost inevitably, the people that have power today got it through some set of mechanisms, which this innovation is going to upset. And I'll, I'll pick up on the Nokia story. So I literally was in, I want to say, Ulu or one of their research labs, held in my hand a tablet-sized device. It used a stylus. It didn't use touchscreen, but it used a stylus. You could get on the internet. You could run apps. You could do, I mean, it was an iPad to all intents and purposes, and they nailed it. And yet, despite the fact that they had spent literally hundreds of millions of dollars on R&D during that period, they couldn't get it to market. The, the guys that were running the existing business units were just like, this is weird. This is complicated. I, it's going to upset my quarterly numbers. I just I don't see where it's like, I don't get it. I don't get the vision for it. But those were the people that had the power. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd be interested. So, you know, a lot of your work is focused on the kind of, I want to say a monolithic company structure, right, where there is someone in power, there's someone, you know, down here that's trying to get things done. And the people at the top don't necessarily have the same incentive as the people who are coming up with the ideas. Uh, so do you see it as an implementation challenge or a culture challenge or you know, is it some, something else that helps companies unlock that, that opportunity? So it's a little bit of each. And I think 
you know, building an innovation program, first of all, requires three things. Um, so you have to get this flow of great ideas, but it, it can't be innovation theater. And when I say innovation theater, what I mean is let's fly to Silicon Valley, you know, and we'll ride around the Google campus or let's have an innovation boot camp, you know, and thousands of post-it notes <laughs> die a horrible death while we ideate. I mean, not that any of that is bad, but to really have innovation come out of it, you need a second process, which is incubation. And that's taking this raw concept of maybe what could be a future possibility and testing it and nurturing it and getting it to a stage where you get real customer feedback and figuring out if there is product market fit. And then a third process is the process of acceleration. And that is bringing your fledgling new thing to a state where it could be part of the parent corporation. So yeah, guess what? You have to invite in the lawyers and you have to have the compliance people be happy with you and, 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 and. Um, so the first, I think, thing to remember is that you have to have processes set up for those three things. And most companies don't. Second thing is that there are four I'll call them processes as well that need to come together that often don't. So the first one is your strategy process, right? Now, when strategy is done right, it's pulling you into the future, saying this is what we believe about where things are going and this is where we want to participate in that. It's inspiring and wonderful and, you know, really exciting. And then you have your budget process. <laughs> you know, all too often your budget process is like lead, you know, lead weights around your feet because it begins in the past. You know, it, it's like, where does this year's budget start last year's budget? And a lot of times there's no intervention that sort of says, wait a minute, if this is our strategy, we need to have our best resources lined up against that. You know, we just don't see that. The third process is your project governance process. So who decides what gets worked on, who decides who's working on it, who decides what gets budget, what doesn't. And that is often totally disconnected to either budgets or strategy. And so if you pick up the lid on a corporate portfolio, it's typically a mess. You know, there's stuff that has been in there. It's somebody's pet duck from, you know, four CEOs ago and nobody said, why are we still doing this? Or, you know, it's such a sacred cow. Nobody's brave enough to say, you know, honestly, this is getting nowhere. Or you've got stuff that's mission critical, absolutely important. This is our future and nobody's really working on it full time. Right. So you see all these mismatches. Um, and then the last process is the process by which people feel that they're going to be rewarded. And so to have an innovation structure, I'll, I'll call it a structure, not even a culture, but to have a structure, you need to have those things working together. And very often they don't. They work completely at odds with one another. So if you've got a CEO, right, who's on a two year clock time frame in his, his or her own mind, and you've got an innovation program which won't bear fruit for four or five years, and you know that, right, unless you've got a countervailing structure which says, well, actually, no. You know, you'll get a piece of the reward for this long-term thing happening, you know, in some way that makes sense to you. Unless you've got some structure to do that, well, the, the logical thing to do is not worry about the innovation. You know, pass it off to the next people, you'll be long gone by then. And it, we see that all the time. And I think it's a leadership challenge. But I think it's also unrealistic to expect human beings to respond to incentives in any way other than what makes the most sense for them. Absolutely. And it's an issue that we've confronted in in pharmaceuticals with, you know, call it a phase transition problem, right? I mean, so I think there's two phase transition problems. One is moving customers from the way they are today to the way they need to be, right? So let's say you need to move the gene therapy from where they are. That's a shift that they need to make as well as you. And, you know, Michael Schrag and others have written about that. But the phase transition problem, I think is the biggest, is exactly that incentive problem that you can be rewarded for moving products very easily from one phase to the next in pharmaceuticals. 
without it ever making a dent in something that you might launch, right? So you get incentivized, you get rewarded for numbers of candidates that make it from phase one to phase two or phase two to phase three, none of which might ever have a chance of success, but that you've done your job, you've you've contributed to the process. Mm-hmm. So I guess one question for you as you've looked at across companies is, why do they all have one process? You know, why, why is there one innovation process in companies where, which seems at odds with the idea of innovation in general, right? That, that there's one decision process, there's one strategy. Why not have a few horses running it with different approaches to, to, to life? Well, and I recommend that you do. So um, a portfolio model that I like to use says, look, you've got your core business and in your core business, there's two choices, right? How do you keep your existing good healthy core businesses healthy how do you disengage from the ones that are not going to be part of your future right Mm -hmm. then you have your new platforms which i would say are candidates to be the next generation core business so these are you know amazon web services slotting in something a companion to amazon and those will eventually become the core and that's great and then you have your options and in options what you're doing is you're making hopefully smallish investments today that buy you the right but not the obligation to make a future investment so as an example if i were to take what's going to come after zoom you know i don't know you don't know no we, the data do not exist right is it going to be holographs is it going to be something you project on your on the ceiling from your phone is it going to be bendable screens is it going to be robots i mean i, I have no idea but if i was cisco or oracle or zoom you know and I, it, it's important that i know the answer to that question then I would want to have bets, like small bets placed in each of these areas so that I, I, I'm close to the phenomenon. I'm seeing what's maturing. I'm seeing who the players are. I'm seeing what the networks are. And it's a very different idea than I'm investing for ROI. You know, it's, it's I'm investing for insight and knowledge and, and building that. And that's, I think, where um, companies need a different process, right? Mm-hmm. You need lots of experimentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting you know, especially in an industry that's mostly based on experimentation is that there's very little experimentation with ideas, right? So, you know, my written a lot about the idea of asymmetric learning, that the asymmetry in your ability to learn faster than someone else that has the same product, that's the competitive advantage going forward. So finding out what the drug does, finding out whether the market might want it, those two things themselves are you either embrace the uncertainty or you try and predict your way out of it. And I think most companies are trying to predict, you know, what a market opportunity looks like, what a drug might do, despite the fact that the only way of doing either is to experiment, you know, is is to say, is to try it and see. So so I'd be interested in, in, you know, your experience in, you know, what might be the reasons that companies prefer the kind of confidence of false confidence, if you like, instead of the uncertain approach. Well, you know, I think it comes back almost to um, the work that's done on cognitive biases and this wonderful book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which I think yep. I read uh, by Daniel Kahneman. And and he argues that it's deeply rooted in biology. And I, I think I see a, a certain amount of sense in that. So our brains are built to conserve energy. And so our brains leap to making decisions in the most seamless you know, grit-free, convenient way possible. And so the easy, quick decisions are the ones that we gravitate to. So, and yet what Kahneman observes is the slow thinking, that process of saying, wait, I'm going to take a step backward. I'm going to take my time. I'm going to look at this. Um, I'm going to turn it around and around. And and that's hard work and it's effortful and, and it feels slow, right? So I'll give you an example from a client situation I'm facing right now in pharma. 
So this is a very interesting situation. And obviously it's confidential, but it's a certain kind of, uh, call it a digital product, which is going to provide feedback to a patient to create a behavioral response on their part. And so my colleague and I have been asked to work with this project team to use techniques like discovery-driven planning to sort of build out this thing. And what, what the client is requesting is follow the plan. So the first challenge was we try to get them to define what success is. And we thought that was going to take half an hour. We thought that would be completely clear to everybody. Turns out, no. So the region has a different definition than the headquarters does. Headquarters has a different definition than the project team. It's a mess. And so finally, we get somebody to step up and say, okay, here is I'm willing to say what success is. So then the next thing is, okay, well, how are you going to sell this thing? You know, what, what price are you going to charge? And so, you know, they're saying, well, we don't know this and that. And then, and then, then my colleague and I are saying, well, you know, you say you've done this, this product, this market research, right? They hired this market research firm. They've got 12 different ecosystem partners meeting on a regular basis. And some of the very basic proof of concept questions that we were starting to ask, they are not willing to respond to. But then the piece de resistance. So the head of this whole shebang comes to us and says, well, we, we think you should stop working on this project because the plan is so far advanced that we can't change it now. And I'm looking at them going, you based a plan on air. You have made this up out of whole cloth. And my prediction is they are headed right for a complete disaster. And I, I don't mean this personally, but but I think this is what happens, right? Your, your brain gets into a mode where you say, I've got to have a plan. It's got to be filed by the end of the year. This is going to have to get put in my, you know, the 2023 budget. I've got to make sure that I've got that. I've ticked off all the boxes. I've wrapped it up in a piece of paper and now I'm done. And along comes this really awkward academic saying things like, well, have you tested whether it actually does in the field what you say it have you tested whether it solves a real problem? You know, have you tested any of these things? And the answer basically is no. And they're so resistant to doing those tests. They'd rather stop my work on the project than sort of have to go revisit that. And so here's, I think, the, the crux of it, which is stopping now and, and revisiting some of those assumptions feels painful. You know, it feels effortful. It feels painful. It feels like I'm going to slow everything down if I do that. And so what we'd rather do is wait three years, go through a clinical process, get it out into the market, and then have it fail. I mean, it's astonishing to me. Yeah. No, I see it almost every day. Fortunately, less and less, but, you know, a good example. We did a pre-mortem with a, with, with a group that was about to run a study. And the interesting thing was we'd run this workshop. So it had been a good workshop. They'd focused on the future, what they were going to do, you know, when it was successful. I said, well, we've got some time at the end of the workshop. We run a pre-mortem. So just go with me. You know, three years time, the studies failed. I want, you know, I want you to tell me why it failed. And the, the first response was, you know, we don't want to do that. It's not going to fail. They well, okay, just trust me. So go the exercise. It has failed. I want you to tell me why. And one by one, some of them started to pick the stickies up and some of them started to you know, look over and see what each other was writing. And, and eventually they got rolling. They got rolling and um, suddenly the wall was filled with with stickies. And then you could pass this stuff out. And actually it was interesting just how much volume there was in the, and uh, here's the reason, so operational, technical, clinical. Mm-hmm. And they put it on the wall and I've never seen a group of people look more depressed but in the answers were in there, right? So I said, well, then we could pass them. We go, well, now you've got something you can do about it. You can mitigate the risks. So you can start to have a plan to address these things that you know to be true, but but um, might never have been said, why have you never done this before? And I said, well, no one's ever asked us whether this might fail. They've only asked us 
what to do in, in, in the face of success and to give it positive spin. And I roll forward three years, the study did fail. And actually, a lot of the reasons that it failed were already written down three years ago, but no one did anything about it then. So to your point, you know, the, the, a lot of people are much more comfortable with a, you know, call it like a hesitant decision than a decisive hesitation, you know, to pause and and, and, and correct things. So uh, I'm almost fascinated by, you know, industry-wide and non-farmer ex- examples of that. So yeah, well, I'm I'm suspecting in the case of this particular project, uh, there's someone somewhere in the decision-making chain who's planning to move on, right? They're planning to take either their next job or their next role with another company, or they're planning to do something, and they want to be able to say, well, when I was in charge of that project, it was going beautifully. It only fell apart after I left, right? And so there's this kind of you have to really understand the personal motivations that are going to affect that. And and it's so hard to get to the real study, right? To get to the real reason something happened the way that it did, that it's very easy then for people to spin it into a completely different story. Yeah. And, and something you've written bef- about before that I always found appealing was how much easier it is to say no than it is to say yes within an organization. So could you, you know, give me some of your thinking on that? Yeah, so there's a couple of nuances to that. Um, so it's hard to say no when things have picked up a certain amount of steam. And this kind of project is, is something that I would say. It's easy to say no at that very early fledgling, ooh, you know, what if we thought about doing it this way? Um, and that's when people, look, you know, we've never, we tried that once and it didn't work. Um, we, we, that's not how we do things around here. Oh, our clients would never accept that. You know, and people will make up in their heads all these reasons this thing is impossible. And it kills off a lot of uh, creative innovation right at the beginning. And the reason that's problematic is we know innovation is a numbers game. You know, that we know that to get one or two really smart breakthrough ideas that are material enough for a large organization, right? I mean, that's the problem. Like, if you're an entrepreneur and you start a business and it makes $700,000 a year, that's awesome. Like, like, there's no problem there. If you're Novartis and you start a project and it makes $700,000, yeah, that's a disaster. So you got you got to have an idea that will scale. And therefore, obviously, it's a rare idea, right? So you need lots and lots and lots of ideas before you get one that's really got to be able to take your company into the future. And so that no process, that oh, we've never tried that, it didn't work, we tried that, we had a project like that some years ago, all that reasons people don't want to do anything different is it, it truncates the volume of ideas you're going to be able to work through. And actually, I was listening to someone describe their process in, in, you know, in, in a company, and, and apparently the, the program team, so there's no representatives of team structures further up the organization. The folks who come in might be regulatory, they might be clinical, they might be commercial. And they report upwards vertically into their organizations, right? So I said, well, that has to lead to the regulatory people being disincentivized from taking any risk. You know, why would you take any risk if there's no skin off your nose if you said no? Right? So you say no. No one's ever done this before. You know, no one's ever going to question you because you know the, they don't want risk in the regulatory group. The commercial people might be you know, pushing for something, but they have no lever to make change in, in, in the team. So I think what was clear to me was there was almost this multicultural approach where the cultures of the divisions were going to be the, the, the kind of arbiters for whether a decision gets made, but they weren't aligned. You know, they were in disaligned incentives in that, in, in that team. So, well, who would have designed a structure like that to, to, to be successful in, in, in an innovation-based culture? And her response was, well, actually, no one really knows where it was designed, but 
it's hard to shift. So to your point, how do you get an organization to shift from where it is mm-hmm. to, to this to be place? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, have you seen any positive examples of companies that have shifted oh, overnight? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I've worked with um, uh, um, all Fidelity Personal Investments under the direction of Kathy Murphy. And they were a very successful, but very traditional investment house, right? They, they offered investment products to investors. They charged fees for those products, blah, blah, blah. And she was met with this deep sense of unease. And I want to say about 2014 and called up my colleague, Ram Sharan, who you probably know, he's a very famous management consultant. And her concerns were as follows. The fintech companies were not tackling financial service stalwarts head on, but they were nibbling, right? So they'll nibble a little bit at FedEx, Forex, and they'll nibble a little bit at, you know, pet insurance, and they'll nibble a little bit. And, and you know, the bundled structure of financial services, she worried, was at risk. But the bigger challenge that she felt her organization had was that they were very product out. You know, so I'm in structured investments, or I'm in checking accounts, or I'm in, you know, whatever it was. And all we talk about is that way of looking at the world. And so she started an experiment. And the experiment was today, we might think of it as lean, you know, that that kind of set of methodologies that comes when you have product teams that have all the capabilities that they need so they can see a complete app or implementation through from beginning to end. So they don't have to, it's not like a waterfall where you're waiting for the next group, right? And so all the product teams are there. They work in relatively concentrated periods of time. So, but they also are oriented around a typical customer problem. So as an example, you know, how do I get someone to be able to log on to their account in half the time that it typically takes, right? Is there something we could do to make it just super frictionless and easy for a customer to log on? And that might be something that team would work on for two or three weeks. And then they'd hand over a complete product, you know, to be implemented or to be uh, dealt with. And she eventually, she did a pilot with it. They found that they did their new enhancements in um, 25% of the time it had previously taken to, to do that with an equivalent traditionally structured team. And eventually she turned the entire organization into that. And this led them to an innovation, which I remember absolutely shocking the world. I was, I was at a convention of chief strategy officers and they um, three of them were from competing organizations. And this was 2018. And Fidelity just announced that they were having no fee offers for three of their major investment products. Now, all these other guys made their money on fees. And here's Fidelity basically saying, we're going to give this product away for free. And the, the, the switch that they had made was the teamwork was one part. But the second part was, let's look at the lifetime value of a customer for us over a long time horizon. And what we want is a free entry level product so that we can get younger people into our ecosystem right from the get-go. And so they had this vision of of how are we going to completely transform our relationship with, especially our younger customers, uh, in a way that, you know, feeds to our long-term benefit. And it was hugely successful. Interesting. Because I'm always fascinated by the kind of comfort that tech companies have with that kind of you know, uh, customer level innovation, to, you know, trial and error, experimentation. And the more traditional companies seem a lot more stuck in, you know, we've got to know that this is going to be right before we'll do it or even think about doing it, even though they know that they don't know very much about, you know, any, any of the things that they need to know about. Do you, do you see a difference between tech and and kind of legacy companies or is it, is it, is it am I seeing that the wrong way? Well, I would frame it in terms of the difficulty of 
creating a prototype or a test versus, you know, versus other. And certainly legacy comes into it. But, you know, you can you can prototype a digital product very, very easily. You, know, you can mock up an app. You can do a wireframe. I mean, there's a lot of ways with a digital product you can get responses. It, it gets harder when you have physical products. Now, you can still do it, right? You can make mock-ups out of styrofoam. You can use, you know, gumby bands. You can, I mean, there's things you can do to mock up a physical environment but the the closer you get to something that has to have a lot of features in it before you can actually test it out um the more expensive it's likely to be now that much being said i think a lot of people use that as an excuse so i'll give you an example that steve blank uses um, he was teaching an entrepreneurship class and the students work on their businesses and this group of students had an idea that they were going to create this drone surveillance system for selling information to agriculture um, and that they would put up these drones and they would get cameras and they'd have all these sensors and then farmers would buy this information. And Steve was like, well, hang on, before you go spend tens of thousands of dollars on putting up drones, aren't there things in the sky right now that, you know, you could hook a camera on? <laughs> and it turns out, yes, there are. There are weather balloons, and weather satellites and stuff like that. And so what the students did as a, as a prototype was they just took a bunch of relatively inexpensive cameras, got them up on the, on the other people's devices right and and then they used the data that they collected to see if it would have any value to the farmers whatsoever and they made a few sales and they said hang on this is actually valuable stuff and so then what they focused on was the, the image collection devices and the value in the data rather than worrying about putting up fleets of drones which would have been much more expensive and much less desirable interesting and i'm going to flip to the conversation around serendipity because i know you've written about this before and i've written a lot about the idea of what i call planned serendipity because you know there's, there's this uncomfortable truth for the farmer industry that a lot of the good products were discovered serendipitously right they weren't pre-planned in, in, in that sense but I've, I've had to explain to a lot of people the difference between serendipity and luck as in you know seeing the opportunity and what just happened and then providing the environment for good things to happen. So, you know, your your case study is almost an example of that. But, uh, you know, maybe once you see the results of an experiment, you're in a different place than you could have been sitting on on, on a whiteboard. Uh, could you explain a little bit more, more about your uh, thinking on serendipity? Sure. Um, so I think the, the there's a prepare, preparation to see serendipity. Um, I think far too many of us look at the world, you know, with, with patterns that are already in our minds uh, that we don't actually see in front of us. And there's some evidence. So Matt Richtel, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning author, I've just, just re reading his book, Inspiration, and he talks about this as well. He says, it's been shown that highly creative people, if you present them with a visual field, they actually see more objects than people who have not sort of embraced uh, the, the desire or need to be creative. So there's a, a question of, do you make the space to have things that may, might challenge your views sort of appear in your field of view? And then do you have enough um, experience to see what you're, to realize what you're seeing, right? Um, to actually see what, what those patterns could be telling you. And I think we don't, we don't, often give people enough variety of experience to really see those contradicting things. And I think in pharma, for example, you know, you tend to slot yourself into one specialty or one skill very quickly. So I'm in R&D or I'm in supply chain or I'm in commercial or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and, and you don't have the breadth of experience to actually know when you're running across a blockbuster idea because you don't see how all those pieces fit. So I think there's this notion of lateral thinking. There's this 
creating space for it. There's making room for patterns to make themselves felt, um, all of which have a, you know, a, a contribution to serendipity. There's one last thing, too, which is it's the willingness to let the system have a little slack in it. I mean, among the things we know about creativity is it's often a product of a wandering mind. So you're currently, your mind is not doing something. You're bored, you're looking at the ceiling, you're in the shower, you're on a train, you know. And um, my colleague Bill Duggan has done a ton of work on that, which shows that, um, you know, those are the moments when you're, you're sort of, unconscious mind puts these patterns together and they get revealed to you. It's those aha moments, right? And so I think this whole kind of bundle of having some slack time, seeing the patterns, having exposure to what Rick Tull calls your spice rack of, <laughs> of possible uh, realities. And then, and then it kind of clicks together when you see it. No, it's, it's fascinating because I mean, people will use serendipity as a, the thing not really dig into it you know you look at what happened with something like viagra is a classic case of people saying oh this was serendipitous but it isn't obvious that you would have looked from you know a failed cardiovascular study to a market that had never existed before you know you looked at that market with traditional market research there was no opportunity so to see something and create it and then go with it um where most people know oh, that study failed for safety signals so i always think that that should be telling companies something about that kind of you know some slack in the system that allows people to think laterally about well it might not have done this but this this could be appealing if we were to go look at it mm -hmm. um do, do you see anything in the kind of corporate culture that enables that slack is it um you know is an embrace of uncertainty is it you know desperation you know what is, is, is there a predictor of, of, of opportunity seeking um, well, I think a couple of very specific techniques companies use is uh, multiple sources of funding and approval. So if you go to, say, 3M, which is widely regarded as very innovative, if you've got a champion for an idea, there must be a hundred places you could go to get funding and support. So there's grants that you can get. There's different kinds of fora you can get. You can join a community of practice. Now, not huge amounts of money, right, but enough money to tinker with your idea. And I think that's that's so. So principle number one is don't allow one person to dictate what ideas get greenlighted or not. Then have multiple places which have little pockets of resources you can appeal at. Another uh, company that's very interesting in this regard is Amazon, which is very future forward on the topic of failure. And one of the things I admire that they do that a lot of other companies don't is they actually interrogate their failures. So they'll look and say, okay, so we, we had these hypotheses about this and that and this and that was going to happen. It didn't happen that way. But what have we learned? So as an example, um, they had a product back in the early days of digital streaming. It's called Amazon Unbox. And we didn't have high-speed broadband in everybody's home. And we didn't have devices that could display you know, high-quality movies. And we didn't even have a stock of high-quality digital movies, even if we had all the other stuff. So you're looking at a very disadvantageous point in the evolution of that category of offering. And so Unbox was supposed to be their sort of foray into, into digital film and streaming. And it was a disaster. And then they took a step back and they said, wait a minute, what, what didn't work, right? And what didn't work is the experience itself wasn't seamless. The, you know, a lot of the, the, the ecosystem dimensions that they would have needed weren't there. And so they said, well, wait a minute, rather than selling Unbox as a service that people would pay for, why don't we change the, the purpose for Unbox and make it part of what subsequently became Amazon Prime Movies? So the goal now has shifted. So you're not making a service you're selling by yourself. You're making a service that's making your Prime offering ever more irresistible. And because you're not charging for it, and this is important, 
people aren't going to whine that the selection isn't that good. People aren't going to whine that, you know, the download took a little while. You're getting it for free. You know, what right of you to complain? And so <laughs> you're turning something that was a real disadvantage into something that in the eyes of that target consumer was a real advantage. So to me, there's this willingness to be curious and question that's that's a big part of navigating through something that didn't work out. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the asymmetry of learning and seeing that as a learning process instead of a knowing process or approving processes. So, uh, you know, because again, you know, I've written a little bit about the pilot mindset that, you know, some companies run pilots and it's also, and sometimes it's hard to tell if they're doing it in order for it to fail um, and then say, oh, we tried it. Let's not do that again. Or if they're running it with a genuine goal of learning, right, which is that you get to the end of it and you'll know something that you couldn't possibly have known before you did the pilot. Do you see a difference in companies that, you know, fall into those two camps or, you know, how would you describe a pilot mindset? Well, I think the difference is running an experiment with a genuine experimental mindset versus running an experiment when you've already made up your mind about the answer and you're going to fight to the death to prove that you're right, right? And I mean, more what breath is wasted in large organizations about being right than maybe any other topic I've ever witnessed. So, you know, you'll get into a pricing conversation, let's say, and one person will say, I think it should be 52. And another person will say, no, it should be 78. And you're arguing and arguing and you haven't got any data in the room, right? And so, so the logical thing to do is to run an experiment. So we've got genuine uncertainty here. Here's three plausible hypotheses. Let's see which one seems to seems to hold out, if any of them do. But yeah. set them up as experiments where you've got a hypothesis, you've got a predicted result, you've got a predicted outcome, and you've got an actual pattern you can test and interrogate. Um, yeah. Even if companies are willing to go into experiments, a lot of times they design them so badly, you really don't learn anything. It's interesting, and I know you've written, I'm interested in asking you about your uh, writing on assumptions, right? because assumptions is one of those words that everyone thinks they, they understand, but actually people have very different understandings of what an assumption is. So some people have that mindset of, I've given you my assumption and it's right, and now I'm going to defend it, versus this is just an assumption. It has confidence intervals, it has, you know, where it came from, there's you know, it has a certain evidential quality, has a certain you know role in in decision quality. Um, but some people, you know, some organisations they take those assumptions and they run with them, right? So the the probability of success is seventy five percent here, and you go, well, I don't mind the number, but I want to know what your range was. I want to know where it came from. And a company that is comfortable with that uncertainty is fine. I think a company that bakes those 75% in as, as the assumption, you know, they, they start to struggle. So I'd be interested, you know, could you elaborate a little bit on, you know, your thoughts around assumptions in planning? Oh, sure. Well, human beings are terrible at <laughs> assumptions. They just are terrible. Um, so one of my earliest encounters with this was the work of Russ Acoff um, at Wharton. Uh, and years ago, what he would do is he would go around companies making important strategic decisions. And all he did was he interviewed people at the point the decision was being made about why they were making the decision. And he wrote this down and he called it his assumption checklist. Um, and he'd go back regularly and ask the same people <laughs> what they were thinking about that same decision. Now, that same decision, of course, is receding now in history, right? It's It's been a while since we had thought about that. And he discovered that after about six weeks, nobody in the place could remember half the assumptions that they had articulated to him at the time the decision was made. So the first problem with assumptions is a big chunk of them get forgotten. Now, the second problem is the ones that don't get forgotten get turned into facts in our mind. 
And we forget it was just our assumption, right? So if I take a, uh, a recent pretty spectacular flame out, right, the Quibi video system, right, it's backed by Jeffrey Katzenberg and, and um, you know, very, very, Meg Whitman, you know, really famous people, $2 billion of capital raised. I and mean, on this idea that what millennials really want is high quality 10 minute movies. Well, you know, Forgive me for saying this, but I didn't, I would, I could have tested that assumption for you at spending a lot less than $2 billion, right? Um, and you, what you could do is you could, you, I mean, sure, to do a big Hollywood type movie, you'd have to have it very fun, but you could at least come up with, hey, if I had your favorite action figure in this thing, you could figure out how to cut out, say, 10 minute really complete stories from existing films. I mean, there's a ton of ways you could have gotten mar market feedback on that. And yet, and yet we don't do it. Um, and and I think it's it's just emblematic of how we mismanage assumptions. Yeah, no, no, that's the cynic. I haven't put that together. And I know Michael Trag and the Innovators Hypothesis talks about is you know five by five, you know things you can learn quickly and cheaply that will give you some clue. But there is that decisive hesitation in it, which is let's not take the decision today. Let's take a decision in a, in a month's time or five five weeks time. Even that is a positive step, I think, in some of those decision processes, because I get to the case study you just gave. Five weeks' time, you might be in a very different mindset with, with some of this stuff anyway, once you've invest, at least investigated or explored some of the, the assumptions that you've made yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the other set of assumptions I think are super challenging are assumptions that have to do with the user's actual experience, right. because... We're sort of smart about what we do as an organization. You know, so at Columbia, we deliver courses. At a pharma company, we deliver a drug, you know, blah, 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 blah. But what we don't see is all the places where the experience collapses, not necessarily because of anything we did or didn't do, but perhaps because it's an ecosystem partner or something, right? So let me take an example of buying something on the internet. Uh, depending on your sector, anywhere from 63% to over 80% of customers abandoned internet shopping carts without buying anything. I mean, think about that. More than half of all the customers who came to the site, looked at it, decided to buy, were willing to put their you know thing in the cart, um, and then they just opted out. Now, most of the time when that happens, the company that's making the offer, selling the product, selling the service, whatever it is, has absolutely no idea why. And yet some researchers went back and studied it. And it was a very predictable set of things, right? The, 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 the provider wanted me to create an account and I don't want any interest in that. I didn't like the sketchy way they were looking after my um, credit card. The delivery time was too short or too, too long. Um, you were going to cost me what for delivery? And, 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 and people don't see that. And so we make all these assumptions about how fantastic our product is and we fail to complete the connection to the actual customer activity. Hmm. No, it's, it's interesting. And, and maybe a question that just, just sprung up in that is the almost a linear sequence of people that need to make those choices, right? So, I mean, you know, traditional pharmaceutical development, you've got scientists, you've got clinical folks, you've got operational folks, you've got manufacturing. All the way down the line, you've got the commercial people that have to go and sell this stuff to people, actual customers. So I'd be interested in maybe the, you know, the prioritization in that chain, knowing that the product that you're developing, really you're developing with a view to it selling at some point. But the user experience is, is typically thought about way too late to make a difference to the product at all. So is that something that's general or is that, you know, am I you know, thinking about pharma as, a, as an outlier here? Well, I think pharma 
is different than a lot of other sectors because in many cases you have you have no choice you know if you need that therapy to live then that's a pretty compelling argument as to why somebody should be buying it for you right so i think that is different most most products don't have that life or death kind of quality to them but you know there's a lot of pharma that isn't life or death either so there's a lot of pharma that's life cycle or lifestyle or just a better you know so so i, I think that category of life changing drugs is one category and then the rest is, is something else but yeah i would agree you know there's a real tendency to leave the design of the customer experience till the very end of the process and when i talk to people in pharma you know so we have to prove that the technology works and then we have to prove we can do it at scale and then we have to prove we can get regulatory approval and blah blah blah, blah, blah. and then you get to the end of the chain and it's a horrible experience you know for people um so you know i'll give an example um there are all these drugs now that need to be infused right and it takes a long time and, and you have to typically go to a specialist place to get this to happen. And I mean, they're miraculous drugs. They're, don't get me wrong. These are amazing therapies, but nobody's really thought through. So I've got to now you know, make an appointment at the hospital. I've got to show up you know, at the right time with some of the drugs. I have to have someone drive me. The timing is unpredictable, so I might have to get there and wait. And, 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 and. I mean, if you were designing a consumer experience to be accessible, you would design it really differently. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, it's, it, 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 it remains this, this challenge. On your approach, discovery-based planning, I'll be interested in you, first of all, explaining that because we, we have a, a an approach, you talk about this sort of plan to learn, right? At least make yourself it, uh, believe in a pre-decision mindset. The decision hasn't been taken, the decision is going to be taken in the future. Will you collect different evidence? And if you think the decision already has been made, and of course, everyone changes their mindset as soon as they think, well, we're working towards a future decision. So, you know, Annie Duke, you know, the author of Thinking in Bed, she talks about playing poker the same way. Right? The early rounds are not, you're not playing to win, you're playing to find out. So the idea that in pharma, you're doing the same thing, which is managing the uncertainty towards a future decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought was, you know, rather parallel to where you were with this discovery-based planning. So could you elaborate a little bit on, on the kind of mindset there? Yeah, so discovery-driven planning, um, well, it emerged, as I've said, out of this study that I did of flops, you know, like these huge corporate failures with companies that you would think would sort of know their business. And what we found when we looked at how these things were planned, so things like Euro Disney or FedEx's ZapMail or, you know, Google Radio or things like that. So these are smart companies, right? These are not idiotic companies that systematically go out and hire the stupidest people they can. I mean, that's not the problem here. But what we found was a common pattern. Uh, Untested assumptions taken as facts. Very few opportunities for low commitment testing. Leaders kind of aligned with, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, I've committed to this and we're not changing our minds. Um, And no opportunity to break the process into pieces and stop and and see what's happening. So what discovery-driven planning became was a response to that. So we said, okay, first thing you want to do is define what success would look like. So let's agree on where we're trying to go with this thing. And this is where you get the question of materiality for a big company. You know, if I'm going to be a venture for a company the scale of, say, Novartis, I'm going to have to be a very high potential thing. I've got to affect a lot of people's lives. It's got to have a big impact. You know, if I'm doing a little entrepreneurial thing, it doesn't need to be quite so large. So what does success look like? Then we back into, well, okay, so what's your what's your business model? Right? What, what's your unit of business? What do you think you'll be selling? And, you know, roughly, what do you think you'll be charging for that? Now, if you can get some hypotheses about those three things, what you can do is create what we call a reverse or upside down income statement. And that basically says, 
let's say, um, just as you and me, you know, if I wanted to make $100,000 of profit in a year and my gross margin was 20%, that means I have to earn $500,000 of revenue in that year, right? So you're starting with something you care about, in this case, profits, and backing into what would have to be true for those profits to be delivered. And then what you can do is just follow through with the document we call the deliverable specifications. So it's, okay, so if you need to sell uh, $500,000 worth, how much per unit? Um, and okay, so what are the costs going to be involved in doing that? So what you're doing is um, defining success, defining your competitive reality. So does this thing imply that you've got to sell 10 of them per day to every man, woman, and child on the planet? Because that's probably not very realistic. Uh, or is it a realistic kind of thing? Then we document the uh, actual operational activities that have to happen. So do you need warehouse space? How many salespeople are you think you're going to need? Um, what, what are you going to do in terms of manufacturing cost? And as you're doing that, right, by definition, you're going to be making assumptions. So what we ask you to do is document them somehow so that you can capture what they were. And then the heart and soul of the process is really planning to what I call key checkpoints, where a checkpoint is a learning moment. So it could be an experiment, it could be a set of customer interviews. It could be the creation of a prototype. It could be something that happens in the world that firms up something. So a law gets passed or a regulation is shifted or whatever. Um, but the idea is you plan through each checkpoint and that at each checkpoint, you ask what we call the race questions. Um, should we redirect? You know, do we have new evidence that suggests we should do something different? Should we accelerate? You know, maybe we should, you know, get on with it. Our competitors are catching up or whatever. Should we just continue? Or should we exit? And we ask the exit question at every checkpoint. And what that forces people to do is almost like in your pre-mortem. You know, it's like, well, hang on. Given what we know, given what we've learned, given how different the assumptions are now than what we started with, maybe stopping is the most sensible thing we can do. Interesting. No, it's, uh, it, I mean, it's always amusing because when you say this stuff outside out loud, it's like, it seems so obvious, but you have so many processes baked into companies which are at odds with most of that thinking. Um, but I'm aware time's getting away from us. I'm keen to get on to where you're going next, which is around strategic inflection points. So, because the new book's focused on that, uh, could you tell us what they mean to you, strategic inflection points? Yeah, so the term was invented by Andy Grove back in the 90s in a fantastic book called Only the Paranoid Survive. And he talked about them uh, as something that really changes what's true about your business. So I define a strategic inflection point as a change in what's possible that has the potential to create a 10x shift, 10x faster, 10x cheaper, 10x more convenient. So at first I was looking at these things kind of going, well, so great. What, what do you do about that? If a meteorite comes and hits your business, how are you supposed to do anything about that? So the piece of the puzzle that made the book work for me was they feel when they happen as though they happened overnight. Like, how did this happen? It's just fuck. At that moment of inflection, right? But if you go back in time and look, they've usually been brewing for years, sometimes decades before it actually shows up on your doorstep. And that, to me, is the strategic opportunity. If you can be watching them and tracking them all along, when that moment happens, you can be prepared. Yeah. yeah. You're going to be in the water when the wave comes. Uh, you know, somebody said the budget time for swimming is uh, is really important. Um, I, um, I need to ask you a couple of things which are more i guess personal so around things you know your reading list at the moment you know are there books that you'd absolutely recommend in this space or are there books that you're reading at the moment that uh that you'd recommend to folks 
Oh, absolutely. So on the whole innovation creativity thing, I adore Safi Bakal's loom shots. I think he was the first guest on this podcast. Oh, was he? Oh, there you go. Well, he's a good choice. Excellent taste. In the question of how you actually get the organization to respond, I do recommend Jeff Pfeffer's book on power. I mean, it's not directly related to innovation per se, but it is directly related to how you get stuff done and why things go wrong in companies that you need to learn. So it's called Seven Rules of Power. Uh, I think that's a huge, um, hugely impressive book. Uh, one of my colleagues, Eric Johnson, has written a book about making decisions. And so here's a little puzzle that he opens the book with. Why is being the default search engine on an iPhone worth Google paying Apple $20 billion a year? And if you think about it, this is a, something a user could default away from in, I think it's six clicks, right? So in, in less than a minute. <laughs> I could give up on Google as the default engine. So there's no like entry barrier. There's no traditional strategic, you know, thing that would cause you not to do that. But Eric's answer is it's all about the decision uh, framing, you know, the decision context. And that when we understand the decision context, we're able to shape how decisions flow. So I think that's a very interesting one. Um, another one is, is, you know, the Kahneman book on thinking fast and slow. I think that's very, very powerful. Um, and then just for fun, you know, uh, Jennifer Aker and Naomi Bagdonis's uh, humor seriously, I think is great for how you bring humor into tense situations and deep use them. I would love to explore that with you a little bit more because it's, it's one of our cultural kind of values that humor is actually how humans put ideas out there without needing to be wedded to them. Right? You know, it's not just a disruptive South Park type stuff, but there's a lot more in the engagement where if you're smiling at someone, the idea gets taken a lot more gently than if it's uh, than, than if than if you're in an adversarial situation. I, I, the, my producer always asked me to ask this question. So the, the, the segment's called this or that. So in a team environment, do you prefer disruption or innovation? In a team environment? Yeah. Uh, well, innovation, I would say, but, you know, disruption has come to mean so many things to so many people that it, it's hard to get your head around. Um, Matt Richtel would tell you that when you talk about disruption, it actually causes people to feel very uneasy. <laughs> you know, that because by definition, if you're disrupting something, the old way isn't going to work anymore and the new way hasn't yet been invented. Um, and so yeah. I think it makes people feel uncomfortable when you talk about disruption. Yeah, yeah, it, it's an interesting term, isn't it? It's become that uh, everyone wants it, but no one really wants it to come from the bottom up. It's a uh, top-down disruption is okay. Um, I could talk to you for another few hours, Rita, but uh, I, I know that you've got other things to do. So if people want to find you on the internet or elsewhere, what's, yeah. what's the best so my website is readamagrath.com. Uh, that's a good place to start. I publish uh, articles every week under the title Thought Sparks, and so you can find them. I think I have an archive going back to 2005. So if you're interested in my thinking on things, you can search on there. It's it's searchable. It's clickable. You can find them, uh, and that's totally free. Uh, you can also subscribe there uh, if you want to get regular emails delivered to your inbox. Um, so that's one place. And then I have a tools company called Belize, which is offering learning modules and some software and some advisory to kind of bridge that gap between, okay, now I get the idea. How do I make it work in my company? That's really what Belize is all about. And that's V-A-L-I-Z-E.com. Fantastic. I will certainly include all of that in the show notes. So uh, I would encourage people to find you. I, I've, you know, I found your LinkedIn um, uh, 
blog way too late. Uh, so apologies for that, but uh, it, it, it's great reading. So thank you for putting it out there. Um, this has been a huge pleasure. Thank you, Rita, for, uh, oh, for, for, for this. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for this week's episode of Idea Collider. To continue the conversation, visit our website at ideapharma.com. Follow us in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Until next time, I'm Mike Rea, wishing you great success.